Life Audio. Hey, welcome to God's Love for the Unlovable, the Irrelevant. I'm Dr. Bill Sigurd with Gospel App Ministries. We're in our Advent series, God's Love for the Unlovable. So what happens when God's love for the unlovable, the unloved, and the unlovely, and that's all of us on any given day, if we were just honest, what happens if it bumps into those who are clearly not lovable or unworthy? They're unclean, they're unrighteous, right? They're sinners. What goes down? What does it look like, feel like? What difference does it make to you and me today? Well, since it's Christmas, we've been spending our time with some of the characters in the account of Jesus' birth. There was Zechariah, the, uh, the temple, the enigmatic Simeon, and today, the mysterious Magi. So let's have some holiday fun. Welcome to God's love for the unlovable. We'll get started after a quick word from our sponsors. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. God's love for the unlovable. I mean, that's the whole point of the incarnation, right? So what happens when God's love for the unlovable incarnate bumps into the lives of regular people living their regular lives around 4 or 5 BCE in the Middle East? And not just Jews. The Jews at some level understood that they were to be the light to the Gentiles, at least in theory. God seems to be intentionally pursuing, and maybe that's not quite the right word, uh, interrupting their lives, getting right up into their grill, uh, Israel and the rest of humanity. I mean, that's part of the incarnation, right? God's coming for us. How relevant is this today? I mean, as I write this, um, Hamas and Israel are at war in Gaza. It's been fomenting since 1948, and it's just erupting into a full-out war. So my point is less about the current horrific conflict, but it seems like there's been a conflict in that region forever, and is a God-kingdom stuff coming and happening. It's no doubt mysterious. It's over my pay grade, but something's happening. Yeah? Well, somewhere between 5 and 7 BCE, there was a child born there in Judea, Bethlehem specifically, to a virgin, a direct descendant in the line of King David, whether she was aware of that or not. It's the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one born to be the manifestation of real light to the world, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, light and darkness. And biblically, there is no other light yet to come. Jesus is it. His light has exposed all of the other lesser lights, his birth has exposed other so-called lights in, in any form or any context as irrelevant. The light that the Magi represented bowed to the one light. 
in Bethlehem. So in the narrative is a very interesting and well-known account of strangers, people from another country, likely Gentiles, maybe priests, maybe pagan mystics, maybe astrologers. They're followers of lesser lights. That's the point. Who have been brought, made to come to an audience with the infant Jesus, the final light. And there, no matter what they thought before, they came, they worshipped him as king of the Jews. Look, it's a highly unlikely scene. Well, as we've seen in our series, God's love for the unlovable, so often God will pursue those who are trapped in darkness, trapped in disease and shame and death, the demonic, um, those who've been treated unjustly, abused, and he's doing it in order to rescue them, set them free, redeem them, heal them, embrace them, raise them to new honor. He goes to them to make the irrelevant more than relevant. So think of the Samaritan woman. Think of the, uh, the people controlled by demons. Think of lepers. Think about dead boys. Think about grieving widows of dead boys. The blind, the lame, women, men, boys, girls, Jews, Gentiles. And when Jesus bumps into them, their lives are changed in one degree or another. They become relevant. They become people of honor, followers of Jesus, and they begin to feel lovable. That's the point. So in this story, God brings magi, whoever they are, into his presence, into his very audience, face-to-face with God, made flesh, where he can look into their eyes and they can look into his. It would seem that they got it. Whatever they believed before, whatever God or king they served before, they became worshipers of God and his Savior of the world, Jesus. I think, to one degree or another, It was the light that guided them, compelled them to come, and even that light had been supplanted by the light of the world revealed in the infant king. So I'm not suggesting they understood everything, or in modern terminology, they became saved. I like to think so, by the way, but I don't know. But they worship Jesus. That's good enough for me. Well, how do they fit into our theme, our Christian theme, that God's love makes the irrelevant relevant? How does that fit with these magi? Interesting. Uh, As they gaze into the infant face of God made flesh, they must have come to see, little or a lot, that they've been on the path of irrelevance to one degree or another. I mean, what else could the scene in context mean? The God or king they served, wherever they came from, is now irrelevant in contrast with this king. And I think they could see that now. You know, what in the world have we been doing? Thinking we're supposed to be wise people. It's all meaningless. We can see that now. I felt the same thing at 21 when I finally looked into the face of Jesus and I felt him looking into my face. I've wasted all of these years chasing darkness. I mean, I didn't call it that then, but I see that now. And I was calling it light. Well, I can relate to the Magi. And so it's going to be fun to explore their stories for just a few minutes. So who were they? Well, in a previous show, we looked at the irrelevant temple priest, Zechariah. He was likely struggling with his life, his legacy, his calling as a priest, the corruption in the temple, uh, what God thought of Israel, right? But what could he do? The corrupt high priest and his cronies didn't answer to Zechariah. The Holy of Holies was empty. And no matter what Zech does, he can't have a child by his own power and Liz as well. Judaism, his religion offered nothing to him. The Torah only explained why his life was 
not being blessed by God, but it offered no solution. And being a righteous man, he wasn't just playing a victim card. He was concerned about God's people who were wandering without a shepherd, who had no redeemer, and nobody seemed to have their backs. But then an angel intentionally comes to him face to face as Zechariah was, and in a moment, Zechariah became a prophet of God's love for the unlovable people of God. And he won't be the last. Zech became one of the most relevant people of his generation. And that's the lens through which we're rereading the entire Christmas account. So thanks for joining me. Love to hear what you think. So, okay, so what about the Magi? I've long been fascinated by the Magi, the so-called wise men. I remember in an elementary school Christmas pageant, I played wise man number two. Right? There were three of us, of course. Not that we have any real reason to think that there were three magi. And we were to sing, We Three Kings, which, by the way, there's absolutely no reason to think that they were kings of any kind. But this was my big stage break. The audience was packed with agents and screenwriters and producers, right? Well, no, not really. Parents, family. But still, it was my big break. Wise boy number one choked. Beads of sweat formed on his brow, and he had that look of a deer caught in a headlight. Nothing came out of his mouth. He was supposed to sing, you know it, born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, right? Everybody knows the song. The carol was composed by American John Henry Hopkins Jr. to be used in uh, elaborate nativity dramas that he was staging. So I did what anybody would do. I stepped up to my friend's side and sang his part until he joined me as if nothing was wrong. Face saved, pageant went on. The rest is history. <laughs> anyway, Hopkins, you know, he wasn't a historian or a biblical scholar, I suppose. And, uh, you know, what do you say about the Magi? Well, this is a good place to get a word from our sponsors. We will be right back. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So let's read about the mysterious visitors from the East, Matthew 2, 1 through 16. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east and came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, by the way, that's a whole conclave, right? He asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Matthew 2, 1 through 16. So it's a beautiful story. A lot of speculation who these magi were. Some speculate that they were sent by wealthy Jews who had remained in exile, the former Persian Empire, now Parthia. Uh, But I think Matthew would have noted something that important, that they were Jews. And we know they came from the east. So what was to the east during the time frame? Yeah, a shattered, weak Parthian Empire. So it could be. Others speculate that the Magi were Zoroastrian priests. Zoroastrians have a similar religion, right? They were followers of a supreme god, Ahura Mazda. Uh, The best and most dangerous counterfeits are indistinguishable from the real thing, right? So they were monotheistic. Uh, So it's an intriguing possibility. Zoroastrianism was prominent in the Parthian Empire. So think modern Iran, Iraq at the time of Jesus' birth. They would speak Greek or Aramaic, so they could have spoken to Herod. Uh, They believed a savior would come, Shoshan, or a series of saviors who would be filled with divine glory or spirit or some mystical force that would empower the savior to bring about final renovation of all creation, where good will overcome evil and evil destroyed. Uh, So the savior figure will, quote, embody righteousness. Sounds very Jesus-like. And in truth, but if the Magi were Zoroastrian, I would have looked for that kind of language. Uh, you know, they were proclaiming Jesus as the Shoshan, filled with righteousness and truth. But, okay, uh, argument from silence is not in the text, but so it could be, right? They certainly would have been recognizable in Herod's court as mystics or religious people, but would they have been welcomed? See, here's my problem with this approach is they would have been Parthian. Herod was deathly suspicious of Parthians. He had defeated them 30 years earlier to get 
the, the throne, but boy, they just continued to threaten him and undermine his reign. So by 5 BCE, Herod was sick. He was dying. He was growing more and more violent and paranoid. Look, I don't think there was any way he would have received an official governmental delegation from Parthia. Uh, and even less, a delegation that was proclaiming another person the king of the Jews, right? That was the official title given to him by Augustus in 37 BCE. I think he would have popped. He might have entertained a religious Zoroastrian delegation. All right, I can see the argument for that. Even though Parthian, it's an interesting possibility. Uh, but look, as far as we know, we don't have any other historical account of Zoroastrian priests ordaining kings. Uh, was gold, frankincense, and myrrh symbols in Zoroastrianism? I don't think so. But many think this was what happened. But there's another interesting option. At its pinnacle in the early first century, the Nabataean kingdom ruled east of the Jordan River from Damascus all the way down to the very bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, think modern Yemen. So they had a virtual monopoly on the transmission of the highest quality of frankincense and myrrh and gold from the Arabian Peninsula, right? Sound familiar? Their land caravan routes were heavily protected and went all the way from Yemen all the way to the lucrative port of Gaza. Yeah, Gaza was something else back then, very different today. If the Magi brought to Jesus the best frankincense and myrrh, one way or another, it came by way of the Nabataeans. Just saying. And also, they would also be described as coming from the east. So is there something in their religion that gives us a clue? Maybe. So while the Nabataeans did not accord their God with physical representations like face or bodies, we know a little bit about their pantheon. There was Al-Uzzah, the all-powerful head of the gods, Al-Qutbay, the god of learning, commerce, writing, Alat, the goddess of spring and fertility, and Al-Qom. I find Al-Qom interesting related to this story. He was known as the god who guards and guides caravans, through the desert by means of stars. Right? Just saying. So were the Magi thinking they were following Alcom? I just find that interesting. Again, big time speculations. We really don't know. Other connections with Judea and Nabatea? Herod was half Nabatean. His mother was a Nabatean princess. Also, a decade before the birth of Jesus, that kind of time frame, the royal vizier to the Nabataean throne, Silius, asked Herod for the hand of his sister, Salome, and Herod rejected him and created a very dangerous enemy in Silius. Not long after that, when the real Nabataean king, Abotus III, died, the ambitious Silius claimed the rulership of Nabatea, and a political civil war ensued. So follow me. My point is this. At the time of Jesus' birth, the throne of Nabataea was in great turmoil. So when the Magi did their thing, I wonder if they weren't representing their king or country because all of that was up for grabs. Maybe. It would fit. We can't be sure. They remain fascinating characters. So why am I referring to them as irrelevant? A couple of things. So let's assume that they are secular ambassadors being officially sent from the Nabataean court, right? In the moment, the Nabataeans are very, very relevant and wealthy on the world stage. But not for long, the Nabataean empire is going to be tossed into the growing graveyard of world powers. 
Their incense monopoly, which was based on their guarded ground shipping routes, camel caravans, was eclipsed when Rome bypassed it with cheaper and faster fleets of ships on the Red Sea. They're going to be unceremoniously annexed to Rome in 106 CE, and Nabatea will be no more. Now, we only have the, the ruins to tell their story. And by the way, Parthia, gone. Rome, gone. So, what if the Magi were religious representatives of Zoroastrianism? Did you know that today we estimate that there's significantly less than 200,000 adherents uh, to Zoroastrian, largely in the parts of Iran and India? Christianity, it has eclipsed Zoroastrianism. Same thing could be said to the pantheon of deities of the Nabataeans, or Rome, all ruins. The Magi, whoever they were, became major relevant characters in the birth account of the Messiah, right? They were lesser lights and worshipped lesser lights that was eclipsed by a great light, Jesus, right? There they stared at the face of the true God, and the face of the true God stared back at them. I suspect an inviting, warm, welcoming gaze, a calling gaze. Did God give them the faith to feel his love for the unlovable? I hope so. In the presence of God, the irrelevant become relevant. Yeah? Well, in our Christmas portion of God's Love for the Unlovable series, we want to suggest Christmas songs or carols that have touched us, that pick up themes in the show. So I'm going to recommend to you this time the song, He Shall Reign Forevermore by Chris Tomlin. Check it out on the YouTube video. It references light and dark worlds, wise men traveling far, And most importantly, it proclaims the child as the final king who will reign forevermore. And here's some words. In the bleak midwinter, all creation groans for a world in darkness frozen like a stone. Light is breaking in a stable for a throne. He shall reign forevermore, forevermore. He shall reign forevermore. Unto us a child is born, a king of kings and lord of lords, and he shall reign forevermore. Look. Just put on your headphones, turn it up, sit back, and let it wash over you. And maybe you too can find his relevance to planning whatever virus of irrelevance that has affected you this season. Yeah? So help us get the word out about God's love for the Unlovable series. That Whoever listens to it will thank you. I have other shows on the Livestream TV channel, the Drug Free channel, Women's channel. We'll see you there. I have a new book soon to be published about long-overlooked and unappreciated women in the Old Testament. We're calling it Dance Daughters of the Most High. If you're enjoying this series, particularly if you're a woman, you're going to love this book. These are the little-known stories of great female giants of the Old Testament, and you're just going to be encouraged. If you want to know when it gets published, drop me an email, bill at gospel-app.com, and let me know what you think about this show. I would really appreciate it. Hey, listen, if you've benefited from this podcast, please give us a comment wherever you listen to podcasts and officially follow the program. I want to thank you ahead of time. We'll see you next time. Merry Christmas. Take heart, child of God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God looks at your heart, not your gene size. 
Do you know the verses yet still stress over your body? Oh, I get it. I was raised in church, but I struggled with food, eating disorders, and my body for decades. I'm Heather Creekmore, host of the Compared to You podcast, where we talk about all things body image and comparison from a biblical perspective. We get real about the pressure to focus on appearance in a culture where looks seem to matter most. Whether you're wrestling wrinkles or battling the scale, Compared to Who is the show for you. You'll laugh a little and be encouraged a lot. If you're ready to stop comparing and start living, visit lifeaudio.com to listen and subscribe.